You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, Bill Powers, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, recipient of the North Carolina State Bar John B. McMillan Distinguished Service Award, and a founding member of the Center for Legal Education and Advocacy. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Law Talk. The practice of law is a challenging way to make a living. At times, it is deeply fulfilling, meaningful, and personally satisfying work. It is a true honor and privilege to help clients in their time of need. Most lawyers go to law school because they care about people. They want to make a difference. It is a principled decision, one predicated on a life dedicated to others and the highest and best aims of the law, that is, to serve the greater good. That's why many lawyers consider what they do for a living, their profession, the practice of law, a higher calling. The vast majority of lawyers I know, particularly criminal defense lawyers in Charlotte and throughout North Carolina, care about people and their community. Criminal defense must be a love and passion. Very few lawyers get rich doing defense work. It's not like med mal or PI or even divorce law. Criminal lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, want to impact lives in a positive way. They want to share the benefit of a long and very expensive education to serve others. Justice, true justice, is at times a difficult endeavor. Criminal defense attorneys see, and in some instances, have personally lived through the prejudices inherent with our system of justice. They tend to be the type of people who stand up to bullies and speak truth to power. And for whatever reason, criminal defense lawyers are all too often maligned as proponents of crime or impediments to the rule of law. The decision on whether to attend three years of law school, sit for a bar examination, subject yourself to ethical background checks, and dedicate your career to helping others with difficult fact patterns that are often unpopular in the court of public opinion might be best called a journey. It takes time and some pretty thick skin. Not everyone starts on the same path. Not everyone has a straight road to success or is guaranteed success or personal satisfaction or even financial stability. The practice of law especially to practice a criminal defense law, can be a difficult way to make a living. Today, I am privileged to be joined by attorney Evan Rawls, premier criminal defense lawyer in Charlotte, and one of the best, most admirable human beings I've ever had the privilege of calling friend. Welcome, Evan. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Bill, and nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Look forward to this podcast. Yeah, me too, Evan. It's something I've been really looking forward for quite some time. Uh, Evan, I've been practicing law since 1992, and that's about 30 years now almost, and I've seen a thing or two. And during my tenure with the Advocates for Justice, traveling throughout North Carolina, trying trying cases in different jurisdictions, I've been really lucky to meet many, many wonderful lawyers. And with that said, there are very few professional colleagues I've encountered, whether they be criminal defense lawyers, divorce lawyers, accident lawyers, prosecutors, judges, who have as interesting as a personal story as uh, you do. Your journey, as I like to call it, is truly remarkable. I suspect your personal journey is also an important aspect of what makes you so incredibly good at what you do. And to get people up to speed, let me brag on you for a minute, if that's okay. That's fine. Okay. and, And please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so, graduated uh, Duke University in 1972, uh, went to UNC Chapel Hill, and graduated uh, law school in 1978. Uh, you've uh, 
won about every professional accolade I can think of from best lawyers in America, white collar criminal defense and non white collar criminal defense, which means something been in super lawyers, been in business, North Carolina, legal elite, uh, you're a state bar counselor for the Mecklenburg County bar. You're the chair currently of the ethics committee for the North Carolina state bar. And, um, you're former chair of the Mecklenburg, uh, criminal uh, bar section, if I'm getting that right. And, um, Maybe uh, bullet points number one and two give us a good place to uh, jump out, you know, get going here. So you graduated Duke undergrad in 1972 in Chapel Hill Law School in 78. And uh, with law school being three years, that means you would have started in 1975. Is that right? No, Bill, that's, uh, that's wrong. I started Duke oh. in uh, 1967 and oh, wow. took a year off after my sophomore year. And uh, traveled around the country some, hitchhiking. It went up to Woodstock Pop Festival in Woodstock, New York. <laughs> uh, and uh, came back to Duke uh, to finish my last two years at Duke. And then I took a year off uh, after finishing Duke. Moved immediately to New York City where I got my New York City taxicab driver's license and New York State driver's license. And drove a taxi up there on and off for the next year, but interspersed that with uh, traveling around the country, uh, getting out to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, uh, I had uh, applied to Carolina Law School. It was the only place I could afford in-state tuition. I had taken the law boards at Arizona State University after I'd hitchhiked up there to sleep on the gymnasium door uh, step in the morning and uh, found out that I was accepted in law school from San Francisco, uh, came back across the country and started uh, law school in uh, 73, September of 73. Um, I really did not warm up to the law school uh, and the, uh, uh, I, I figured I, I was so involved in meditation and Zen Center activities on Page Street in San Francisco. I think I came to law school kind of expecting a, uh, a temple of justice and, and people who were uh, seriously interested in in finding the right paths towards equal justice for all. But I had, uh, I, I had good grades, but at the end of my first year of law school, I went to Dean Dixon Phillips and said, Dean, I, I can't afford to come back to law school next year. And uh, he said to me, well, you've got good grades. And I had him for the small section um, uh, civil procedure. He said, if you've got good grades, if you ever want to come back, I've got a chair for you. So for the next two years, Bill, uh, I wandered around, went back to New York City to drive a taxi, uh, ended up living in a communal situation outside of Chapel Hill, where I reconverted an old tobacco barn to live in, then moved to New Orleans, uh, where I was both a bouncer at a bar in the Garden District at a place called Trinity's, and also uh, was uh, learning how to weld. So I have some certificates from welding, and I have some great memories from bouncing at the bar. 
but then took off to Mexico, Central America for uh, four or five months, all the way down to uh, Costa Rica, taking buses and trains. Um, came back, uh, crossed the border again at Nogales, uh, Arizona, ended back up in San Francisco, washing dishes at an Indian restaurant on the Embarcadero, uh, a place called Anjuli's. And I realized at that point that uh, if I didn't call Dean Phillips back, I would probably be doing dishwashing jobs and construction jobs the rest of my life. So I called Dean Phillips. He said, yep, I got a seat for you. Come on back. So 1976, September, I drove my 1960 lime green Ford pickup truck back across the country and finished up law school in 1978. Now, during that time in law school, I never interviewed for a job. Uh, I had to work to put myself through law school. I think back then the tuition uh, for a semester at Chapel Hill was $371 a semester. So it was affordable for in-state students. But I worked as a cook at a vegetarian restaurant in Durham uh, every Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. Went to law school Monday through Friday. Graduated in 78. So I, I didn't, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of a summary of how I got to, from 72 to 78. Wow, that's quite a, uh, an incredible story. <laughs> well, it's, um, uh I don't even know where to start. There's so many different interesting uh, thoughts there. Where did you grow up? I, I If you said I missed it. I, I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, um, and uh, grew up uh, sort of a child of the 50s. Um, started, my parents were about as middle class as you could get. My dad worked at Western Electric. My mom stayed home. Um, but I started carrying papers for the Winston-Salem Journal and Sentinel uh, when I was in sixth grade. So every morning at five o'clock, I'd go get my load of papers and carry them over to Marymount neighborhood. Um, and every afternoon, do the same thing. The Journal was the morning paper. The Sentinel was the afternoon paper. And the Sunday papers were the Journal and Sentinel. Uh, but uh, grew up in Winston-Salem, and um, when I uh, applied to Duke and was accepted, I really never moved back to Winston-Salem after that. Why did you choose Duke? I mean, um, I mean, obviously a great school, and, and um, you're from North Carolina. You're right, right. there at Wake Forest. Uh, what what? motivated you well my 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 father uh was a graduate of wake forest uh but i applied at both chapel hill and duke and was accepted at both places but i um went down to visit a friend of mine who was a freshman at duke while i was a senior in high school and um spent the weekend down there with him and really fell in love with the place. And it was, it was of course more expensive than, uh, Chapel Hill, but, uh, it was, uh, when I started in 67, it was $600, uh, a semester tuition plus 
housing and stuff like that. Chapel Hill was $175 maybe a semester at that time. Now, I was alive in 67. I can't say I remember 67, but I was alive. And um, being in college at that time must have been different. My father was in college when I was born in 65. And um, he had a few deferments. Um, If you don't know what deferments are, maybe, uh, Evan, uh, you can talk about that a little bit. He was in college. He had just had a brand new baby. And... um, there was this little place in um, Southeast Asia, we used to call it Indochina, uh, where there was a conflict, which a lot of people don't remember how much, how different that time was and how, and how scary that time was, actually, um, I, growing up through that. So do you mind talking about that a little no, bit? No, Bill, I don't mind at all. And you and I both have represented uh, Vietnam veterans that are still suffering from the trauma. Mm-hmm and the disabilities of their service uh, over there. And I, and I, I don't know what it is, but I always put some special extra enthusiasm into my representation of those vets because I did grow up during that time. And I was uh, very much uh, anti-war, marched on Washington several times. I've uh, got tear gassed once or twice, <clears throat> but um Because I dropped out of Duke for a year, my sophomore year, I lost my uh, college deferment. And at that point, uh, everybody was eligible for the draft until they had the draft lottery. Uh, And I can't remember exactly the year. It was probably 69, 70, 71, somewhere in there. But I got called up twice to the draft board when I was back in school. And the draft board for North Carolina was in Charlotte. I had to report to the Selective Service Center in Winston-Salem from Duke when I was in school. They put us on a bus and took us down to uh, Charlotte, where we spent a day going through mental and physical uh, examinations. And um, so I... Just to make a long story short, I was—I had to go twice. I was lucky enough to uh, not get drafted, and but I had decided that if I were drafted, I had several friends that had gone into military intelligence that that would be the route that I would try to go because I'm pretty big and I'm pretty slow, and I just imagine I would be an easy target for just about anybody. But that was uh, right. that was a hard time, and um, we all knew people that had been seriously wounded and and died over there. Um, it it really touched every family across this country. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with a maternal grandfather, who was a medic um, in Okinawa, and um, and uh, lived with them for a while. And I remember his stories talking about that. And this was in the, oh gosh, late 70s, early 80s. Not that far past um, Vietnam, let alone World War II. Right. Um, and um, for y'all that don't know this, and I, I think this is how it was done. My uncle is about your age. And if you were eligible for the draft, the way they would select you for the draft, they used to have a big hopper, as I remember. And they would put birth dates 
in there and they would roll the hopper and they'd pull the birth dates out. And I, I want to say my uncle was like the third one picked, which was you were going to get drafted. And I remember him um, and that time. Um, and uh, I've heard the stories about my grandfather who, like I said, served in Okinawa. And there were conversations about what was going to happen and how that was going to progress. And so um, when I was a freshman in college and I, I started when I was 17. I remember when I turned 18, going to draft board and signing up for that. I don't even know if they do that anymore. Oh, it's required. Um, you're required. When you turn 18, you're required to register with selective service. Right. And um, during that time period in college, we were engaged in another uh, thing. And there was a conversation about whether that was going to move forward. And so um, we never really drafted anyone for any of the golf um, wars. But I remember being in, in uh, college and, and thinking about that as being an option. And you were in the middle of it, which was very, um, well, at that age group, very likely. Um, and um, carrying that around, I, I, that had to affect you, just on your thoughts. I mean, you mentioned you had done some demonstrations. What was, what was kind of the feel back then to give people, maybe younger listeners, an idea of what, the time, what that time was like? Well, everybody remembers their draft number because it was a national event. And you're right, they sort of like bingo. They had a big barrel with ping pong balls and uh, birth dates on it. And my draft number was 11. And that was one of the reasons mm. I kept getting called back up. Um, but uh, it was a time where there was polarization almost like there is today. Um, th there was a very strong um, conservative uh, Richard Nixon type uh, culture and partisans. And then there was a very radical um, movement that, that, that was violent. And then there were pacifists. And so there were, there were uh, strong opinions across the entire spectrum. Uh, having to do not only with the war in Vietnam, but with civil rights at the time. And when I was at Duke, uh, we, we had some remarkable civil rights demonstrations when the Duke hospital workers were trying to unionize and, um, and also uh, uh, going up to Washington again. But uh, it was a time of, uh, of, uh, of partisanship, but it was also, Bill, a sort of a, a, a gap in time where uh, young men and women had freedom to really move about in this country, uh, to explore their passions, to live in communal situations, to uh, and to not be tied down to a nine to five predictable life. And so it made for an interesting uh, groups of in, very interesting groups of people that would open their uh, arms to travelers like me who traveled across the country a number of times, but also uh, explored ways to live communally um, with shared responsibilities and uh, and so it was an interesting time, and uh, and I'm glad I was able to experience it. Well, 
so one of the things I see younger lawyers, especially those who are interested in different causes and, and trying to seek justice and do right, uh, um, get frustrated with the, the system and the biases inherent with the system uh, from whatever perspective you take. And I like to remind them that, yes, there's lots and lots of room and, and work, important work to be done. And it's better now than it used to be uh, in, in, in some ways. Um, the country was just a different um, place, a, a different era that it, even me preparing for this and thinking about it. And, uh, um, uh, you know, I, one of my first memories is the man walking on the moon in July 1969. I remember coming in and uh, my mom grabbed me. I didn't want to uh, come inside. I remember I was playing outside and seeing the little um, black and white uh, Zenith television that had basically uh, three channels, maybe four, if you turn the antennas just right. Um, and and during during that time period, when you went to Duke, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? Or were you fleshing that out? Were you experimenting more with that and figuring out who you were, right? Uh, I got a daughter in college right now. And the, the speed at which it's... Uh, we, we push these kids nowadays. I mean, we have these study coaches to study for SATs. We expect keep kids to um, all have straight A's to get into different universities. We expect them to start immediately and finish immediately. It, it Culturally, it's it's really, I think, changed compared to what you've done where you took some time off and traveled around. Did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Did that affect why you went to law school? That's a good question, Bill, because I think I tried on many, many uh, hats before I landed uh, in law school and became a lawyer. Uh, when I was uh, in high school in uh, Winston-Salem, I was fortunate enough to have a Sunday school teacher my junior year who, uh, in, he was a lawyer and he lived up the street from us and his name was Bill Pfefferkorn. And Bill, uh, rather than teach traditional Sunday school, he started uh, talking about the great trials in history, the trial of Socrates, uh, the, the trials of Sacco and Vanzetti, Jomo Kenyatta, the Scopes trial. Um, and so he took these trials apart and, and, and his teaching was about the positive principles and also the the way that uh, justice can be sidetracked. And I was not a regular Sunday school goer, but I went to every single Sunday morning class that he taught. And that that uh, that really started me thinking about being a lawyer. Plus, I was on the debate team at Reynolds High School. Um, we, uh, I was the, on the affirmative team. We had, uh, the, uh, the, the defense team and, uh, we won the state championship that year. And, but the, the, my two partners on the negative team outpointed my partner and I, so they were technically the state champions, but RJ Reynolds <laughs> won, RJ Reynolds won the uh, state championship that year. So, I, I knew I, I, you know, I had some abilities in terms of advocacy, but um, 
but when I was growing up, uh, I, I read several books that, and this is early, early Duke, and, and uh, I read a book by Alan Watts, um, who's a great Zen writer called The Way of Zen. And that started me on this path of uh, what I wanted in my life. I wanted to be at the, when I came to the end of my life, I wanted to sit on my front porch in a rocking chair and really understand the nature of the world, the nature of people, and the nature of life. And that was my goal. Uh, so and that's part of what uh, inspired me to hitchhike back and forth across this country, no less than six times, hop freight train from Eugene, Oregon, down to San Francisco. Um, uh, and and travel uh, the various ways that I've traveled, but um, but it wasn't until uh, I was applying for the LSATs when I was living and working in Eloy, Arizona, which is in between Tucson and Phoenix, um, that I really thought about going back to law school. Uh, I didn't have any idea what I'd do with it. Uh, when I started law school, I didn't even know what the word plaintiff meant. So that's, I, I started not from just level ground, but from underground when I started law school. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Um, I've always referred to myself as an accidental lawyer. I didn't really have the motivations that I think some people have are going to law school and that's that's okay. I think having our own paths. I'm encouraged by. I'm a COVID. One of the things that uh, I cut the cord finally and got rid of the um, major satellite dish companies, and I I went more to the uh, YouTube thing. And I really enjoyed seeing these younger generations of people that are uh, recording hiking the Alps or walk. One of the first ones I watched was walking the Appalachian Trail which I've always wanted to do and younger folks living out of cars and, and really experiencing, uh, fleshing out that, that kind of life. And, uh, I, I can only imagine when you say hopping a train, I, I don't think people realize you're not talking necessarily about getting a year rail pass and having a first class seat with champagne and strawberries going under the channel. You're in the back of a box car. Um, and, hopping a train as it's hopefully not moving too quickly, right? That's exactly right. And, um, and it's that's crazy. Well, you know, that's nuts. Well, <laughs> but it's also a metaphor for life because once that mm -hmm. train pulls out, you're not getting off till it's over, mm -hmm. you know? It, and, and so <laughs> the one train ride, I can still uh, smell uh, the Douglas firs and the Cascade mountains. The, the train I hopped, uh, pulled out of Eugene, Oregon, and then turned east into the Cascades away from uh, any civilization. And as night fell, I climbed up on top of the car and the stars, you know, it was one of those where there was no light pollution. The stars were everywhere. The Douglas firs, the, 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 the scents of the Douglas firs were overpowering. And as this train moved through the night, it really was, I, I felt it was a metaphor for life because once, you know, once you get on, 
on this life, you're not getting off until the train pulls into the station. But we, you know, when, when, when morning came and I was still on the uh, train and we would pass by these uh, crossings with the arms down and mm-hmm. I was invisible uh, to, to the people there at the crossings and just watching all the different types of families and faces and peoples and cars as, as this train whisked me along realizing that I was just a, a witness to this part of America. And uh, it was a very powerful, powerful train ride. I got off the train, Bill. Um, you know, I was warned that if you pulled into the station, the the uh, the guards would, you know, beat the tar out of you. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, the train slowed down mid-afternoon. So I'd been on the train about 24 hours. I got off the train in the middle of a field, no road anywhere, uh, near, near Sacramento, California. And so I started walking, followed a creek down to a dirt road, walked that dirt road till I could hitchhike. I got it picked up and then, then was, uh, hitchhiked back to my apartment on Oak Street in San Francisco. I'd been gone for about three weeks or so. I decided to go uh, hitchhike out to uh, Yosemite for a little while, then hitchhike over to Boulder, Colorado, and check out uh, what is now Naropa Institute, which is set up by a Tibetan Lama named Trungpa Rinpoche. He was well-known back in the day. He was known for his, quote, crazy wisdom, end quote. And, uh, and so I was out in Boulder for a while and then hitched back up to see some friends in Seattle and Eugene. But, uh, but yes, it was, uh, it's, it, it was enlightening. What did you eat? I mean, did you bring, do you have a knapsack or something with you? I I carried everything on my back. Everything I owned was in my, uh, my, my backpack. I had a sleeping bag. I had a small tent. I had a tarp, I had food, I had matches, I had uh, paper for different different things. And, um, and uh, you know, Writing your extensive notes. Well, and for uh, starting a <laughs> fire, if I needed to start a fire, you mm-hmm. know, th- those kinds of things. But, uh, but yeah, everything, I, I was very efficient. Everything I carried was in my backpack. Um, and when I came back to... You know, there's a... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. When I came back to law school, uh, or when I started law school uh, after applying, uh, all I ha- all the possessions I had fit in my backpack. That's what I carried back across the country. There is a return to that. Um, and by the way, thanks for sharing. I just love that story. The um, it almost sounds romantic to me. Turning off the noise that we have. Uh, today. You mentioned something earlier uh, that I'd like to kind of get into a little bit. I don't want to go too long. We're obviously going to have to do a lot more of these because this is just an amazing story, uh, Evan. But um, something I got into a few, two, three years ago, maybe now is the uh, mindfulness, Mm -hmm. um, the focus, a type of uh, meditation and causing yourself or forcing yourself to 
uh, turn off the devices, turn off the technologies, go to a quiet place and um, focus on breathing and focus on, on, on turning off these things. And you did that even before a time where we had electronics, you did it with your life and your lifestyle. Now, not that there weren't sounds, but there were different types of sounds, not that there weren't stimuli. You you mentioned the the smell of the, the furs and the, I'm imagining the train's actually pretty loud and noisy, but um, if you don't mind, I mean, if you, as you feel comfortable sharing a little bit about that focus in your thought um, um, of, of mindfulness and meditation and how that affects you, affected you then. And does it, do you still use it now? Do you still use those techniques now? Thank, thank you, Bill. Let me, let me start by saying that uh, just this week, the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh uh, passed away. Um, and I watched uh, his uh, ceremony uh, on, on uh, YouTube uh, earlier this week. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, also his, uh, his students call him Thai, which means teacher. He is the one that is credited with uh, uh, the term mindfulness. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was a, uh, a Zen student in the 60s. He came to the United States and became very close friends with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize in 67, which I think is the only year one was not, um, one was not uh, awarded. But Bill, let me tell you a quick story. Uh, the year is 1993. I have a case in front of the Enforcement Division of the Securities and Exchange Division in Washington. I'm representing a local banker that has got some issues uh, with the Enforcement Division. And, bef and, and I've got to go to Washington to present the case. Um, Prior to going to Washington, one of my good friends, who's a psychologist here in town, Joe Parisi, had told me that um, there was uh, this Vietnamese uh, Zen master that was giving a retreat in Charlestown, West Virginia, that, uh, that overlapped with my trip to Washington. And he suggested that I attend. And so I packed up a, uh, a camping equipment, sleeping bag, as well as uh, all the notes and coat and tie for enforcement division uh, arguments, and flew up to Washington, rented a car. And, uh, but the enforcement division case went so well. I mean, we walked out of there with no license suspension, no civil fines or forfeitures, no criminal referrals. And it was one of those cases where you're just ecstatic. And, and I found myself wondering, why am I going to go up to uh, a place called Claymont Court in West Virginia to camp out for a week when, uh, you know, I can go drink a great bottle of wine and celebrate this win. But I drove up there, set up my tent, and Thich Nhat Hanh, I had read about him before, but he was there, and it was a relatively small retreat that attracted uh, environmental activists out of Washington, D.C., mostly. But there was a small group from North Carolina. But that week, Thich Nhat Hanh spent uh, every morning 
two or three hours in what's known as a Dharma talk, where he would he would uh, talk about the principles of living and Buddhism and mindfulness and being in the present moment. And um, and I won't get into all the different uh, eightfold path and four noble truths and all that stuff, but. Um, it was a remarkable week. So I, this is 1993. I came back to Charlotte and the Thich Nhat Hanh was going to give a retreat. His next retreat was going to be out in uh, California. And I packed up, I sent everyone in my office out to California to attend this retreat, along with my wife, Leslie. And Leslie later became... Uh, the editor of his uh, international journal. And in 2009, Thich, she, he, she was invited to France by Thich Nhat Hanh and was awarded what is known as the Lamp Transmission, which makes her a uh, Dharma teacher in his lineage. Mm. So we, are, we were very, very close to Thich Nhat Hanh and his people. But mindfulness was the term he coined. And Bill... Mm. Uh, there's nothing more powerful than being present in the present moment in court from moment to moment. Um, if you can do it, you know, your, your mind is usually racing forwards and backwards and sideways. And, um, and, and but it's uh, it is a very powerful place to stand if you can be in the present moment and only in the present moment uh, in court and in life. Did that answer your question? It did. Um, of course, it brought up a hundred more questions um, for me. I started hearing about mindfulness from a, a guy who was on, he's a newscaster named Dan Harris, who had a panic attack during a national broadcast and uh, for no apparent reason. And um, started listening to this podcast uh and I don't have no affiliation with it. And it's not like there's clicking going on here. Just this disclosure is called 10% happier. And um, his is not faith-based. And and that's one thing they teach you is it doesn't need to be faith-based. I mean, you don't have to be a Tibetan monk. You don't have to have that level of um, uh, of participation. And it. it can be just a almost a physiological type of deal. It's something I've dealt with myself in court. Uh, trial lawyers are an unusual breed in my uh, personal opinion. Um, and we have all the frailties of being human and sometimes more myself. Um, and I've, and I've, I, I, I share this just cause I, I hope younger lawyers listening in, you know, I, I, I find anxiety at time going to court. I have trouble turning off my brain at night. What makes you sometimes effectual or effective in court your hyper focus and your preparation can make you very difficult to be around personally, in my opinion. And um, just this week, there's been a passing of someone that was very dear in the Charlotte legal community, uh, an attorney, uh, someone who um, had a lot going for her. And I do worry for our profession, um, the, the mental aspects of practicing law. Uh, we have one of the highest uh, rates of um, substance abuse uh, at any profession. Uh, there, we had not really studied the issue very much. And um, during my tenure of NCAJ, we 
equally focused on that. And it's a disturbing trend, but it's a treatable trend if we acknowledge it. And um, I encourage people, um, um, and I, I'm sorry to kind of spin off here, but you you brought up some some points. This mindfulness, this this focus applies not just to the practice of law, but in your personal life. And there is a balance there that's important. Um, it's something that the state bar has, um, I have to commend them, uh, you, Darren Jordan, uh, the staff at the state bar, the people affiliated with the PALS program, um, the committees, um, you know, the ethics and the grievance committees. It's something that it's all, there, there's an inseparable nexus, if you will, I think, in the practice of law. Uh, so um, I'll do some, um, in the notes here, I'll do some links for attorneys to the state bar PALS program. Yes, Bill, I'm, and to, Bill, I'm on the board of the LAP program. It's called the Law. I'm, I'm sorry, I called it PALS. That's yeah, the old. That's the old one, but this the LAP program yeah. now. And it, it is, I think, one of the best uh programs that the bar has. And it, um, it helps uh, hundreds and hundreds of attorneys every year that are dealing not only with substance abuse issues, but with mental health issues, with issues having to do with, uh, you know, stress and mindfulness that, you know, that, uh, that we've discussed here. But Robin Moradies is the executive director of the mm-hmm. LAP program. Mm-hmm. And yeah, please put a link up for that because these folks are really uh, guardian angels to our profession. Yeah. And I apologize. I, I'm the old acronym PALS. I'm, it LAP, I mean, what does LAP stand for? The Lawyer's again? Assistance Program. Right. Um, this is something that in my generation of lawyers, and I don't know if it's still true now, I hope the law schools are teaching this, but the, my level of ignorance about the availability of these different programs, among other many, many other areas of ignorance, was so incredibly um, almost disheartening to me. I had no idea the resources. A lot of lawyers, that they've studied this. Uh, they're afraid of saying anything. They're afraid of seeking help, and it, it actually makes things worse. Um, and then, and then uh, I've seen, I call them the flameouts. I've seen numerous flameouts in the legal profession just in my time. I, I have to assume, and you and I know some of the same people, I would think. Um, uh, so I would definitely put um, a, a referral to it, but it's, it's confidential. Yep. Uh, they make referrals um, to different mental health um, associations, substance abuse associations, and they, and they're, they're counselors as well. They can help you go through these different times. And, um, and Evan, um, I, I, this is something as, as being on the board, I mean, you know, I'm not just saying this, I'm going to ask you, it's confidential, right? These are things that lawyers can it, then go in and know that they're, they're going to, what they have to say is not going to be public. It's not going to affect our reputation in the community or the profession, correct? That is correct. Uh, but sometimes uh, lawyers, like you say, hold on too long before they seek help. And it gets them in front of the grievance committee of the, either the local bar or the state bar. And, and so what the LAP program tries to do is try to uh, run ahead of that and not, you know, try to reach the issues before they uh, become issues for grievance. But, um, but it is confidential. Sometimes gr- the grievance uh, committee of the state bar will refer uh, lawyers to the LAP program for a contract where there, there are 
just periodic reports back to the grievance committee about whether they're complying at all without any of the specifics. But it is mm-hmm. it is confidential. The state bar counselors, uh, like myself, that serve on the board cannot be a member of the grievance committee um, because it is confidential uh, what we do. Uh, right. Well, Evan, uh, this has been amazing. And um, I told you I'd only take 20, 25 minutes of your time. And we are now at, according to my little clicker here, 43 minutes. And I feel like we've just scratched the surface. Uh, To our listeners, um, if you have uh, ideas or suggestions or questions for Evan, assuming, Evan, you're willing to come on again, I hope you are. Yes, I'll be back. Uh, uh, Please email me at uh, lawtalkwithbillpowers at gmail.com. If you want to know some more specifics, if there are areas of law that interest you, um, like to go over different things. If you'd like to know the structure of how the state bar works and the differences between the grievance committee and the ethics committee and what it means to be a self-regulating bar, let's listen in. Uh, So thank you so much again, Evan, and it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for legal issues and legislation, practice tips, professionalism, and policy discussions. Want to talk to Bill Powers? Call 704-342-HELP. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decision. All right, Bill.